It's been a little while since a sermon set the world ablaze. We heard a little bit of a, of a blazing sermon, Peter's sermon, in the book of Acts this morning. Men and women of Jerusalem, these are not drunk, as you suppose. That is a great opening line. I wish that I had thought of that one first. This, this Pentecostal preaching moment 2,000 years ago is purported to have converted some 3,000 souls. That's a number historians find a little, little doubtful, but there it is. Pious memory records that Peter, this guy who's coming off of 50 day, a 50-day 50 guilt trip, basically, the guy who betrayed his Lord and Master in his hour of greatest need, he is the one who stands and delivers this message with such abandon, such prophetic grace and fire that the world is set ablaze. I woke up yesterday, maybe many of you did too, to a world set ablaze by an, a different sermon. I initially thought that I was sort of in a pretty small and insular world of Episcopal Twitter and Facebook social media, and that was going to be kind of an echo chamber for our presiding bishop's sermon at the wedding of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry at Windsor Castle yesterday. We knew he was a fiery preacher. Yesterday's sermon was no exception. But then, like, the British media starts going crazy about it. They start asking this, this age-old question, actually, that people have been asking about our ancestors for thousands of years, right? Who are these people? Who is this guy? Where does he, where does he come from? Where does he get all this? stuff. And, and what, in the middle of a very traditional, sumptuous Anglican liturgy with its talus and its elgar and archbishops and copes decorously parading around cherubic boys, boys in ruffs, right? Like, what just happened? I mean, you know that somebody's tapped into the cultural zeitgeist when the full text of a sermon, I mean, a 16-minute long sermon, is printed in full, not just in the New York Times and the Washington Post, but on BuzzFeed and Esquire and GQ magazine. I mean, Cosmo had this thing. <laughs> when Cosmo prints your sermon, you know you have arrived. I mean, you know, when Keenan... <laughs> When Keenan Thompson does you on SNL the night after you preach, right? Like, you know, you know that you're, you're here. Three billion people worldwide tuned in to hear Michael Curry preach at Windsor Castle, and something clicked, right? Maybe it was, maybe it was coming as it did on the, the tail end of a news week that gave us yet more violence and bloodshed at home and around the world, political inaction, tone-deaf responses from government officials. I mean, maybe, maybe the world needed on Saturday to be reminded of what love looks like. That just 180 years after the abolition of slavery in Great Britain, the great-great-granddaughter of brutally enslaved Africans can become English royalty. Maybe we just needed something to celebrate in the wake of all of the tragedy that has surrounded us. The Apostle Peter, when he got up to preach 2,000 years ago, chose a pretty fiery passage, a pretty dramatic passage from the prophet Joel when he preached his sermon on the steps of Jerusalem. I will show portents in the heavens above, Joel wrote, signs on the earth below, fire and blood and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And in that day, God says in Joel, in that portentous day, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, all flesh, everybody together, right? Not just the chosen ones, not just the people who go to church and starch their shirts and know what kind of fascinator to wear to a royal wedding, right? In those days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Your young ones shall see visions, and your elders shall dream dreams. Eure Eltern werden Träume haben, as we just heard it in German. That's a dark prophecy in some ways. It's a prophecy about a world that is turned upside down with violence. But the violence of this prophecy is not the whole story. It's accompanied by vision. And it's accompanied by dreams, by, by prophetic action that moves human beings beyond the realm of hand-wringing and hopelessness, the inertia of despair, and shifts us into a different key. The coming of the Lord's great and glorious day is a terrifying thing, and it is exhilarating. And it takes absolutely everybody to make it happen. That's how I read this text. The book of Acts, in many ways, is, a, is about a kind of a generational shift, right? But it's a shift that requires that the generations come together, not in their sameness, but in their differences. One of the unique things about our world here in the 21st century is that for the, for the first time in a long time, we have, you know, sociologists say sometimes four, sometimes five generations sitting in a room together. We've got it this morning at Trinity. There are five generations of folks sitting in this room this morning. We saw it in a visible way yesterday at Windsor Castle. Four generations of English monarchs, right, walking, walking down the aisle together. The queen, her heir, his heir, and his heir, all up that aisle. You think about the, the differences of the world into which Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor was born in 1926, the world in which George and Charlotte and Louis are being raised. I mean, something is, something is shifting. There's an old world that is passing away. There's a new and, and frankly terrifying world that is being born. There are portents in the sky. Sometimes it feels like the moon itself is turning to blood. And yet our young men and our young women are seeing visions and our elders are still dreaming dreams. A couple weeks ago, I joined some of my clergy colleagues uh, across the river at Augustana Lutheran Church. It was a Monday night. We were there to hear about a proposed state ballot measure, Petition 43, that will propose the end of a sale and transfer of assault rifles in the state of Oregon. And a trio of clergy, with whom Trinity has a long relationship, are the three co-petitioners on this ballot measure. Our friend Rabbi Kahana, who works up the street at Congregation Beth Israel, Pastor Mark Knudsen of Augustana Lutheran, and Mother Alcina Boozer, who is one of the first, was one of the first African-American women to be ordained an Episcopal priest in this diocese. Alcina has been in Portland a long time, uh, and she's one of the, the co-petitioners on this ballot measure. So I'm, I'm trying to sneak in the back of the service at Augustana, right? But Rabbi Kahana sees me, kind of waves me down front. He's like, you need to come sit up here with us. So I kind of sneak up the aisle, a little embarrassed. He plops me down to Alcina. She gives me a big hug. Pastor Knutson is getting things kicked off on a rousing note. And before we know it, he's inviting us to stand, to, to move to our feet, to sing an old marching song, a hymn that is beloved of many of you, probably, Lift Every Voice and Sing. It's sometimes called the African-American National Anthem. It is the hymn from which this ballot measure derives its title, Lift Every Voice. And so everybody's standing and getting ready to sing, and Alcina and I realize that everybody else in the place has a bulletin, but somehow we didn't, we didn't get one. She and I are like shuffling through our papers, trying to find the words to the hymn. The piano is starting this rousing intro to lift every voice and sing, and she kind of looks over at me, she smiles, and I'm like, I don't, I don't have the words. And she, you know, she's, Alcina Boozer turns 80 years old this year, right? She has been in the trenches. She's been doing this work, I mean, standing up for justice, working for equity and freedom before I was born, before my parents were born. And she looks over at me, this, you know, 35-year-old kid, right? She smiles, and she says, I think we can do this one without a song sheet, don't you? And I say, I, I think I know the words to it. And she's like, I gotcha. I know the words to this one. And this 
powerful woman, right? This, this woman who is one of my elders, right? She's one of the great elders, one of the great leaders and apostles of justice in this church. She starts to sing, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark night has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us, facing the rising sun of a new day begun. Let us march on till victory is won. I tell you, I have never heard a hymn sung that way. It broke something open in me. In those days, says the Lord of hosts, in those days your elders will dream dreams. And those dreams are not dead. They are not dead yet. And in those days, the prophet said, your children will be your prophets. In those days, says the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your young women and your young men will prophesy. Your young ones will see visions. They will start speaking in languages that they don't even know, languages that they've never, they've never heard before. They begin to sing a song to which the words have scarcely been written yet. Something, something new is happening. Something new is breaking in. It's something dramatic and different from anything that's come before. 2,000 years ago, on this day, the residents and pilgrims in Jerusalem Jerusalem heard everyone in their native language something being spoken, a prophecy being proclaimed as clearly as if it was their grandmother's voice rocking them to sleep at night. And it was not just the, the native tongues of the Parthians and the Medes and the Eliamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, right? In that first Pentecost moment, the prophecies that were uttered by, you know, 12, 13, 15, 20 people, right, those first apostles, those prophecies were in every single language known to humankind. A bunch of tongues that probably had not even been uttered up to that moment. They began to speak every language. Because when the Holy Spirit shows up, we do not become the same. We become, if it's possible, we become even more different from one another, right? Those original apostles, apostles showing up in that room speaking the same language, right? Like they, they were all pretty much on the same page. They, they probably spoke a little bit of Greek, a little bit of Hebrew, Aramaic was the kind of lingua franca for them. They, you know, they all knew the same words. They knew the same hymns. They knew the same Sunday school stories. They cherished the same ethnic foods, right? And what happens when the Holy Spirit descends on them is that suddenly they are different, they are different from one another. They are different from anything they have known heretofore. They begin to speak every language under the sun because the gospel of Jesus Christ, this, this movement that says that love and justice are the born birthright of every single human being who walks this planet, that's a message that is not restricted to the four walls of, of an upper room in Jerusalem, the four walls of an Episcopal cathedral. It's not just found on the pages of an English Bible or a British hymnal or Red Book of Common Prayer. We're not about one language. We're not about one message, one way of doing stuff. The days of, you know, British, Western, Protestant establishment Christianity, right? The days of, of clear orthodoxy, agreed upon truths, whatever you want to call it, those days are done. They're over if they were ever actually here, ever to begin with. The days of a lockstep religious orthodoxy died 2,000 years ago when a bunch of wild and wonderful people started speaking every single language under the sun. They found God not in their sameness. They found God in their differences. 
So we don't need, we don't need to agree with one another. I do not need you to agree with me. We're not gonna. This movement that Jesus of Nazareth started 2,000 years ago has always been a wonky one. We're stepping into times that are gonna divide us probably as deeply and sharply as Christians have ever been divided. Some of you are, I mean, I know, like you're ready to start marching in the streets, what some have called the great moral and spiritual issue of our time, the question of gun violence and what we're going to do about it. You, you might think that the church has no business taking sides in a political debate, and you may well be right. Some days I agree with you. I get a little tired of pious political grandstanding from religious leaders who are so confident that they're speaking for Jesus. But searching for right answers Right? Settling for the easy stuff that we can all agree on, being satisfied with the lowest common denominator of unity, I think that robs the Holy Spirit of her power and her voice. We are at our best not when we agree with one another. We're at our best when we learn how to love one another despite and maybe because of everything that makes us different. Here at Trinity, that means that we are so uninterested in making more Episcopalians, like making more Anglicans. This is an important thing to say on the day when we're baptizing eight babies, right? Like, <laughs> we are not making more Episcopalians. You are not making them. We're not baptizing them, right? We are not in that business. We're in the business of forming Christians, which is to say people who are ready to sign on to this, this weird, crazy, wonderful mission statement. We call it the Baptismal Covenant. It asks us to learn not to conform ourselves to some unified standard, but to embrace our differences, to learn to speak a lot of different languages, to prophesy, to see visions, to dream dreams that are different from one another, and then to come together in all of our weird and beautiful differences to love one another into becoming the people of the kingdom of God. That is a high bar to shoot for. Settling for pretty hymns in a stained glass church is an easy substitute, and it's a dodge. It's not enough. These times are going to demand something higher, something deeper, something harder, and much more challenging. The work is going to get a lot more difficult before it gets easier. And loving one another across our differences has never been harder. I mean, I'm learning this along with the rest of you, right? I'm not better at it than many of you are. Our young men and our young women are an angry and easily reactive set. Last night I was on Twitter and I'm, you know, it's like, don't get into a flame war, Nathan, right? But the promise is that when we learn how to do this right, when we set aside our easily offended, knee-jerk reactivity and learn truly to listen to one another, to love one another, to see and embrace the very real differences in the 10,000 different languages that we speak, the promise is that we get better at practicing difference and the Spirit sets us ablaze with a vision. And then, my friends, our young ones, catch that vision. They move it ahead. They articulate it back to us. Our elders dream dreams. Some of these are old dreams. Some of them are just being born. And the kingdom of God, in all of its glorious weirdness, begins to crack open little by little. The earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. And all flesh, men, women, gay, straight, Republicans, Democrats, people who don't even fit neatly into those categories, all flesh, seize it together.